Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. Today is my last show that I'm going to be doing, my last episode of Words on Film for 2023. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but I'm going to be taking the holidays off. And actually, I have a really good problem here. I have five movies to review for you, so I really have to get through my reviews a little bit quicker than I normally get through them. So probably a little bit less plot synopsis for you. But two of these films are brand new. One actually has not been released to theaters nationwide yet, but will be next week. But I caught a sneak preview of it. And the other two have been out for a while. The One of them has actually been out for a year, and I'm not getting to review that until now. But I'll get to that one a little bit later. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Wonka. This is a film that is a prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, both the book that was written by Roald Dahl <clears throat> and published in 1964, and also it primarily gets its inspiration from the 1971 film, which didn't do especially well at the box office, but earned a cult following a decade later after some very successful home video releases. In fact, I grew up watching the 1971 version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which, by the way, Roald Dahl hated now, Roald Dahl had a reputation in Hollywood for, yeah, he gave the movie rights away to some of his books, but after he saw Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, he actually said that he would never ma- have another film made out of one of his books again. He didn't hold true to that promise. There were a couple of other films based on his books that came out later during his lifetime, and there were many that came after he died in 1990. As for this movie, I'm not sure if Willie, uh, if Roald Dahl would have liked it. My guess is probably not, but it has some very good assets going for it. It has Timothy Chalamet playing the titular Willy Wonka before he created a chocolate empire, actually while he had dreams of creating a chocolate empire. And it's also directed by Paul King, who's directed many things, but most notably here in the United States, he's best known for directing both Paddington movies. The original Paddington movie, based on the character of Paddington Bear, was very good. Paddington 2 has the distinction of being A, a magical film, and B, one of the few sequels that's actually better than the original. That's in my opinion and in the opinion of many other people. So, with uh, Paul King in the director's chair, and he also co-wrote the screenplay with Simon Farnaby, and obviously the characters in this film... Some of them were based on the creations of Raw Dahl. You do have some good assets here, but at the same time, nobody asked for a Willy Wonka prequel. But who knows? I mean, Paul King brought some magic to Paddington Bear, so maybe he'll bring some to this. And to be honest with you, Wonka is not as good a film as the Paddington movies. But it's definitely earnest, and some of the special effects that they use in this film are quite magical and actually elevate the film to a higher level than I would have expected from a prequel that maybe some other people would have called a cash grab. And they wouldn't have been unreasonable for that. But in any event, Willy Wonka is when we're introduced to him on a tugboat and he's reaching a city that's never explained, but it's the city in which uh, Charlie Bucket lives. Uh, Although probably when this film takes place, Charlie Bucket hasn't even been born yet. But there are Easter eggs here and there that allude primarily to the 1971 film. And once uh, an Oompa Loompa is established in this film, who's played by Hugh Grant, more on his casting a little bit later, the Easter eggs just start rolling in. And actually, Easter eggs are kind of an appropriate way to describe a film about a chocolatier. So Willy Wonka embarks on this town, and he, at first, gets a room at a hotel that's run by the evil Mrs. Scrubbit, who's played by Olivia Coleman, and her assistant Bleacher, played by Tom Davis. And Bleacher is very intimidating and also uh, very funny. 
And he eventually finds that he signed a contract that basically enslaves him to the laundry room, along with a number of other potential allies, including a young orphan girl by the name of Noodle, who's played by Kala Lane. And I had some issues with her character being named Noodle. Now, it's it's eventually revealed that Noodle was abandoned as a child and dropped off on the doorstep, or actually the laundry chute, of Ms. Scrubbit in this film. And it would have made sense for her to be named Noodle if she was maybe dropped off at an Italian restaurant. But I had some issues with her name. Her name could have been worse, but... Calla Lane and Timothy Chalamet do have some good chemistry here as friends. There are some moments here and there where Calla Lane is very good in scenes along with Timothy Chalamet. There are some scenes that require her to be angry as well as to have despair. She's not as good in those scenes, or in other words, her acting needed a little bit of work here and there. And also, there are some other areas where I felt like some people were miscast. For example, Slugworth in this film, who is a character that was created by Raul Dahl, is played here by Patterson Joseph, and he is the major chocolatier in this town that's not given a name. And he has these two other competitors who are conspiring with him to basically hold all the chocolate in this town. And while I thought that plot device was pretty good and, and sets up an interesting plot later where Willy Wonka and his allies are trying to obtain this massive glutton of chocolate, I it was inconsistent with the story of Willy Wonka that's given to us in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because the problem with Slugworth and the other chocolatier competitors of Willy Wonka was not that they hoarded the chocolate and had sort of a chocolate enterprise, a monopoly, if you will, but that they stole ideas from Willy Wonka. And I kind of wish that that plot development had been woven into the story a little bit more. But I did think that Patterson Joseph, while I did think he was miscast as Slugworth, he at least brought a lot of energy to the role and looked like he was having fun. In addition to that, there is a corrupt police officer in this film uh, played by Keegan-Michael Key, who is bribed by these chocolatiers for their chocolate. And there are some good song and dance numbers here. And Timothy Chalamet has been known for his acting. His acting is obviously very good. The ladies love him, but here in this film, he's required to be funny, which he wasn't required to be in any of his other films. And he was also required to sing. And while his singing is a little bit staged, I actually thought he sang very well. He did sing all his songs in this film, and he sings them well. The, the issue is that the songs are obviously pre-recorded, and he was obviously lip-syncing them. But this movie does actually have a lot of magic and pays a lot of tribute to the story of Willy Wonka, which is why I give it my rating of a checkout. I did think that there was some magic missing here and there. As I said, there were some parts that were miscast. There was one role played in flashback by Sally Hawkins, who plays Willy Wonka's mother, and a great actress like Sally Hawkins should not have as little a role in this film as she does, but Paul King does do some good service to the story of Willy Wonka here. It's just not as magical as his Paddington movies, and I also took issue with Hugh Grant playing the role of an Oompa Loompa. Uh, CGI is used to make him more diminutive in size, but I do feel like, especially with the controversy behind the yet-to-be-released remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there is a shortage of roles already for little people. And for a normal size actor like Hugh Grant to play a little person, I did have a problem with that. We could get into that a little bit more. I'm, I'm running out of time here, but Wonka was a better film than I expected it to be. And if Paul King is directing the sequel, hopefully it will be as good as Paddington 2. Of course, we'll have to see.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a very strange film indeed known as Poor Things. And it's directed by a Greek director by the name of Yorgos Lanthimos. And he is actually no stranger to directing strange and subversive films. For example, in 2015, he directed a film starring Colin Farrell called The Lobster. In 2017, he directed a film I actually have not seen called The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And the last film that I saw that he directed was a movie called The Favorite, which is the film that earned Olivia Colman her first, actually her only Oscar for acting for Best Actress in a Leading Role. As to whether or not that Oscar was deserved, I'm not going to get into that because I really have to get into how this movie is. And honestly, there were strange things about The Favorite, and there were especially strange things about the movie The Lobster. And even though I said before that The Lobster was a little too strange for my blood, I've kind of warmed up and gotten used to that film as I've thought about it more and more as time has gone on. As for poor things, it might be a little too strange for me. It actually is based on a book, which I imagine that The Lobster was also based on a book. But this book, to which Poor Things is based, is called Poor Things, Episodes from the Early Life of Archibald McCandless, M.D., Scottish Public Health Officer, which is a novel that... Alastair Gray, who is a Scottish author, published in 1992. And the general rule for movies that are based on books is maybe the movie itself might not be great, but rest assured, the book upon which the movie is based is generally assumed to be good. So I can't make that judgment because I didn't know that Poor Things was based on a book as I was walking into the theater, let alone read the book. But it is the incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of a woman by the name of Bella Baxter, who is a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter. And in this film, Bella Baxter is played by Emma Stone, and Dr. Godwin Baxter is played by an actor who is absolutely well-known for some mainstream films, but most especially some strange and subversive, and some might even say dissonant films, Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe has this face in the film that looks like it was stitched together by way of patchwork. So he kind of reminded me a little bit of Frankenstein, or at least kind of like Frankenstein, which was a satire of the German concept of creationism, where Germans believed that science could solve any problem, including bringing people back to life. I think this might have, this film might have alluded here and there to Frankenstein, but probably wasn't a satire or a spoof on Frankenstein, but it did have some things that were notable about it. But Bella Baxter, being played by Emma Stone, is a very attractive woman, but her mental capacities are brought into question. In other words, for the first 20 minutes of this film, Emma Stone, I would probably say controversially, plays the role of Bella Baxter as if she is mentally challenged. And this might have set this movie off on the wrong note for me, because if there's one thing that I can't stand in movies, it's people I know who are not mentally challenged who play people who are. And some examples of this include Sean Penn in the movie I Am Sam, Roger Guinevere Smith in the movie Do the Right Thing, which otherwise I loved. I don't like it when people of sound mind play people who don't. But And I, w- I would have thought that Hollywood would be beyond this by now. But eventually, as the movie progresses, you learn that it's not that Bella Baxter is mentally challenged, but there is a science fiction type of reason why she acts the way she does. And there is a twist at the end that reveals that Bella Baxter had a life before she was brought back to life by Dr. Godwin Baxter. And it's revealed eventually when there is a nobleman by the name of Duncan Wedderburn, played by Mark Ruffalo, who begins to fall in love with Bella Baxter pretty much because of the way she looks. Because eventually, as they go off to see the world together in luxury, Duncan realizes that there is a lot with Bella Baxter that is wrong. 
not just her behavior, but her interactions. And she eventually has a lot of mental growing up to do. And the movie does have some funny moments, especially when it's revealed that Bella Baxter is maybe inexperienced and sheltered, but she's also an extrovert. And her extroversion, in addition to her naivete, gets her in trouble. And I respected the movie because of that, but I just... The movie at at the very beginning sort of set me on the on the wrong note and it might have been one of those first impression deals where I presumed that Emma Stone was playing someone who was mentally challenged and I do have a particular problem with that but the movie did eventually make me chuckle as it went on and I did appreciate some of the camera angles as well as the set design of this film and also some of the supporting actors in this film like Rami Yosef who plays a noble medical student by the name of Max McCandless who presumably likes Emma Stone's character for the right reasons. And there's also another brief but notable supporting performance here by uh, a comic actor by the name of Gerard Carmichael, who plays somebody that Bella Baxter befriends on a luxury cruise ship. And Jared Carmichael has some very good one-liners here, which he plays straight, but they're still very funny. So Poor Things is a film that didn't get off on the right note, and I think there were some ways in which Yorgos Lanthimos was trying to be subversive, including some of the ways that he wrote the opening and closing credits. Sometimes they were too small, sometimes they were too big, and I appreciate some subversive movies if there is a method to the madness. And it took me a little while to find the method to the madness, but eventually I found it. But I do give Poor Things my rating of a checkout because it's a film that I think, in terms of its story, did need a little bit more polishing. I thought that there should have been some more backstory behind Emma Stone's character that was revealed a little earlier. And there was some that was shown, but I felt like there was more that should have been shown so that other viewers like myself wouldn't assume that Emma Stone was making fun of people who were mentally challenged. And this is a black comedy that you definitely have to use a lot of patience and dig a little bit to find the humor there. But it's easier to find the humor in the last part of the movie than it is to find the first part. And I felt almost kind of like this would have been one of those films that Emma Stone would have done earlier in her career when there weren't as many parts being offered to her. I think it's a bit of a brave role, but it's a risk that doesn't really pay off. But... Some of the things that Poor Things did correctly, I liked and appreciated. It just took me a little while to appreciate it, kind of like The Lobster. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Iron Claw. And The Iron Claw is a movie that has not been released in theaters nationwide yet, but it will be on December 22nd, 2023. And The Iron Claw is a dramatization that is about the true story of the Von Erich family, who is an American professional wrestling family whose patriarch was Fritz von Erich, and he's played by Holt McCallany. And he has four sons in this film to whom we're introduced. We have Kevin von Erich, who's played by Zac Efron. We have an Olympic, uh, Olympic hopeful turned wrestler David von Erich, who's played by Harris Dickerson. Mike von Erich, who's played by Stanley Simons. And you also have Carrie von Erich, who's played by Jeremy Allen White. And this family started off not in WWE or WWF, but in one of the lower-ranked wrestling leagues. And Fritz von Erich was originally a wrestler who, after he retired, he dedicated his life not only to raising his sons on his ranch with his 
wife Doris Von Erich, who's played by Maura Tierney, but he also honed his living sons into a wrestling dynasty. However, there is a curse on the Von Erich family. I, I would say there is a proverbial curse, but you know, curses are somewhat based on your personal beliefs, but the things that happened to the sons in this film are indeed very sad. And some of the ways in which some of the members of the Von Eric family died is going to spoil major parts of this film. However, some people who are bigger wrestling fans than I have, than I am have no have noted that there was one member of the Von Erich family who's not only not depicted here, his name is Chris Von Erich, but he died as an adult, but he's not even portrayed here, which didn't exactly bother me as I was watching the film because I wasn't aware of that fact. But his absence from this film is somewhat uh, notable, not to mention mysterious as well. But in this film, as I said, the patriarch of the Von Erich family is Fritz Von Erich, who's played by Holt McCallany, who did not have a background in wrestling that I know, but he plays the role well enough so that I would believe he was the real Fritz Von Erich. But his, his oldest son in this film, who's technically the lead in this film, is played by Zac Efron. And Zac Efron really, really bulked up for this role. And it, it's kind of amazing because I've, I've been impressed with Zac Efron's acting for a while. He's been in some bad movies, but he hasn't necessarily been bad in them. But here, he really put the method acting, I think, maybe to getting in shape for this film. And if it's CGI that gave him the muscles in this film, then I'd be really disappointed. But primarily, he finds that when he has the demanding father and also his brothers who are really struggling psychologically with his father definitely not helping things, he finds that he's the one who has to keep his family together while also establishing his own life with his girlfriend, later wife, Pam, who's played by Lily James, as well as his burgeoning wrestling career himself. And Zac Efron turns in an amazing performance here. I also liked Holt McCallany here as Fritz Von Erich. And Maura Tierney doesn't play as big a role, but I, I, I still thought she did well with what she was given. And the actors who play the adults, Von Erich's sons, Harris Dickerson, Stanley Simon, and Jeremy Allen White do well with what they're given as well. And there are some harrowing scenes where they ultimately meet their demise. How they're going to meet their demise and when, you could look it up on Wikipedia, but if you really want to have this film take you by surprise, you probably have to see the film yourself. And while I thought that the love story between Zac Efron and Lily James was somewhat predictable, I thought the rest of it really was very well acted and told an amazing story, which is based on a true story. And it is directed by and written for the screen by Sean Durkin, who has turned in some amazing directorial efforts, including Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was the film that came out in 2011, which was the film that put Elizabeth Olsen on the map and also put Sean Durkin on the map for directing as well. But primarily, I think this might be Sean Durkin's best film. It definitely brought 70s and 80s wrestling to life and the set design and the makeup and hairstyling on the actors here really made me feel like I was watching a documentary sometimes rather than a dramatic film. But Zac Efron is granted recognizable enough so that it would kind of take me out of the documentary mode of this film. But the film's very well researched, very well written. It may be one of my favorite films of the year, which is why I give The Iron Claw my rating of a knockout. I think it does a good service to wrestling and also people taking it seriously, even though it is 
technically rigged, but also the family dynamic here, while it is a relatively dysfunctional family, really felt uh, realistic and probably is true to real life. Why they left Chris Von Eric out of this film altogether, even though I'm pretty sure Chris Von Eric would have had an amazing story to tell in the story of the Von Eric family, I don't exactly know. But knowing that fact doesn't ruin my enjoyment of the film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Candy Cane Lane. This is an Amazon Prime original that was released to the platform on December 1st, 2023. So I am a little bit late for this movie. But the reason I'm reviewing it for you now is because, first of all, I saw it this week. And secondly, this is my last show before Christmas. So I figure that I would review a Christmas movie before Christmas. And this movie stars Eddie Murphy and Tracy Ellis Ross as a couple who live in El Segundo, California on Candy Cane Lane. And the patriarch of the family, whose name is Chris Carver, who's played, as you might imagine, by Eddie Murphy, is determined, after he gets unfairly laid off from his company, to win the neighborhood's annual Christmas decorating contest because the grand prize for that contest is $100,000. But in order to win, in order to get the most eye-popping Christmas display for his Candy Cane Lane, he makes a pact with an evil elf to help him win. And the elf casts a spell that brings the 12 days of Christmas to life, which bring unexpected chaos to town. So initially, when I was watching this film, I had my doubts, particularly because Eddie Murphy usually doesn't do very well with family comedies. The one exception, I think, is Dr. Doolittle. And maybe second place would be The Golden Child, although I wouldn't exactly call The Golden Child a family comedy because there was a lot of dark and scary material in that film. It was still a very good film and still one of Eddie Murphy's most underrated films. But Eddie Murphy's other films that have been family-oriented, like Imagine That or Meet Dave, have been, well, not very good. And... It hasn't usually been a career killer for Eddie Murphy. Usually the career killers for Eddie Murphy are films that are dirty, like Eddie Murphy's stand-up comedy is, but also kind of mean-spirited. But that's another story for another time. But actually, this is probably one of the better family comedies of Eddie Murphy's. It's just not laugh-out-loud funny, or at least Eddie Murphy plays it a little bit more straight than he usually does. However, there are some supporting characters who do very well and have very funny moments. For example, Tracy Ellis Ross plays Eddie Murphy's wife, Carol Carver, and Tracy Ellis Ross is not required to be funny in this role, but fortunately she is. There are some moments where she's preparing for a big interview and these uh, 12 Days of Christmas creatures start to invade her workspace and start to sabotage her job interview, knowingly or unknowingly, it doesn't matter, but Tracy Ellis Ross's reactions to some of these creatures pulling this uh, sabotage is very spot on and I thought was very funny. And the evil elf here is one by the name of Pepper, who's played by Jillian Bell. And even though she's an elf and she's not tall, she's not a, of a little person stature either. But Jillian Bell also, I think, plays it very over the top. And she hits more times than she misses here. And there are also some other porcelain creatures here 
who are actually people who signed Pepper's contract, didn't live up to it, and unfortunately are meant to spend eternity, or at least for the foreseeable future, as porcelain characters. There's a British man by the name of Pip, who's played by Nick Offerman. Slightly miscast there, but Nick Offerman actually does a pretty good British accent, better than you would expect from somebody who generally plays the stoic American type. You also have Lamplighter Gary, who's played by Chris Redd, formerly of Saturday Night Live, and Cordelia, played by Robin Thede, and also a chorus of other porcelain uh, people who sing Christmas carols on the spot who are played by the members of Pentonix who have kind of carved a niche in the uh, acapella Christmas album genre because they seem to release a an acapella Christmas album every year. But regardless, it's it's funny actually how the 12 Days of Christmas characters come to life and how harmful do you think that two turtle doves or six geese laying would be. Well, the movie kind of surprises you here and there. There are some other sort of family comedy tropes that are, that are used in this film that are a bit tired. For example, the Carver family have three children. There's joy. Who's a senior in high school played by Jenny Walton, who is a track star who is trying to get into Notre Dame, even though her family wants to get her into the, closer to town USC. We've seen that happen in various movies before. You also have a music prodigy by the name of Thaddeus, uh, or rather, excuse me, his name is Nick, and he's played by Thaddeus Mixon. And he's very good at music, but he's trying to hide that he's failing math from his family. And you know eventually that there's going to be some sort of revelation later that he's actually good at math. And sure enough, that happens. And then there's the youngest daughter, Holly, who's in grade school. She's played by Madison Thomas. And I think she's actually given more to do in this film than just be a cute Shirley Temple-like type. And as she and Eddie Murphy's character were working together to create a Christmas display that would earn the family a $100,000 grand prize. She actually plays a very good role in this. And there were some gags in this movie that didn't quite work. I wouldn't say the film exactly made me laugh, but Jillian Bell probably made me laugh a lot. And there were also these two media personalities who are hosting this Christmas decoration contest. There's a guy by the name of Emerson who's played by Timothy Simons. And there's also a personality kind of reminiscent of Hoda Kotb. She's very cheerful, but not particularly a hard nosed journalist, but she works very well with all due respect to Hoda Kotb for her role in this TV show within the movie. And Kit in this film is played by Danielle Pinnock. And I actually laughed a lot at Daniel Pinnock. I thought she had probably the most standout performance in this film. And she also works very well alongside the more straight-laced Timothy Simons. And the parts where they are sort of giving a Greek chorus to the neighborhood house decoration contest are probably one of the strongest parts of this movie. But there was more to this film that worked than didn't. And in all honesty, I think it's Eddie Murphy's second best family comedy under Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle had a lot of magic to it. And 25 years after it came out, it's hard to top that one. But I thought Tracy Ellis Ross was a perfect casting choice to play his wife. And Jillian Bell might not have been the best casting choice to play an elf, but she did pretty well. And there's also another actor who I won't give away who appears here as Santa Claus, and he does well with his role as well. And Candy Cane Lane is a film that I think is serviceable for the holidays. I can't exactly say whether or not it's going to eventually be a Christmas classic, but it has more of a chance to be of elf status than it would be about Christmas with the Cranks or Surviving Christmas for that reason. And I give Candy Cane Lane my rating of a checkout. I don't know if it's going to be a Christmas classic, but it's more earnest and is off to a better start than some of the aforementioned bad Christmas films that came out about 20 years ago. And Eddie Murphy does pretty well here without being too over the top, but the actors here who are over the top are very funny, and I think this film was overall very well cast and the people who 
play alongside Eddie Murphy, including his own family, are also very well cast as well. And the direction here by Reginald Hudlin, who had previously worked with Eddie Murphy on movies like Boomerang, and also Kelly Younger, who wrote the excellent Muppets Haunted Mansion special that aired on Disney Plus two years ago, work together to create a fairly good Christmas movie, and it might be worth a rewatch. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Spirited. And sometimes when a movie has been out for a couple of weeks or maybe even a couple of months, I say I'm a little bit late to this film. In this case, Spirited may be the oldest film that I reviewed this year because it was released into select theaters on November 11th, 2022 and released onto Apple TV plus where you can still watch it to this day on November 18th, 2022. I saw this movie for the first time in theaters a couple of days after Christmas. I think it was December 28th or 29th, 2022. And the reason I'm reviewing it for you now is because I felt a little weird reviewing a Christmas movie after New Year's. And also, I re-watched this film during the Thanksgiving break. And also added to the fact that I didn't see this film when it premiered because A, it wasn't airing in theaters here in Nashville, and B, I didn't have access to Apple TV Plus at the time. That may change in the new year, but I'm not guaranteeing it. But I'm a little bit late to Spirited, but I'm going to give you my review of it right now. So this is a musical version of Charles Dickens' story of a miserly misanthrope who has taken on a magical journey. In other words, this is a retelling of A Christmas Carol, the twist being that the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, in addition to the ghost of Jacob Marley, are still haunting people to this day, people who don't have the Christmas spirit. And the ghost of Christmas present in this movie is simply known as Present, and he's played by Will Ferrell. You also have uh, notable British actor Patrick Page, who plays Marley. You have Sunita Mani, who is an attractive Indian woman who plays the Ghost of Christmas Past. And you also have the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, who's played in body form by a very tall actor by the name of Lauren G. Woods. But you'll definitely recognize his voice because his voice is provided by Tracy Morgan when he's back in the office and he actually is allowed to speak. Unlike in A Christmas Carol, where all the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come does is look menacing and point to things, if you know the story. So this movie does take place in a world where A, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol has been remade into all the various incantations of films and has obviously been published. So the people in this world are familiar with A Christmas Carol, including one person who is deemed to be unredeemable. His name is Clint Briggs, and he is a public relations manager who's played here by Ryan Reynolds. And Ryan Reynolds plays a Bart he was born to play, which is a snarky jerk. I don't know if he actually is as snarky as he is in real life, but like Ben Affleck, Ryan Reynolds is very good at playing this character. And there's also a character who could be comparable to Bob Cratchit, who is an assistant to Clint Briggs, whose name is Kimberly, and she's played by Octavia Spencer. And Will Ferrell, as the Ghost of Christmas Present, makes it his mission to redeem the unredeemable against the wishes of Patrick Page's Marley. And 
Initially, I had my reservations about this film because I've complained about Ryan Reynolds a lot. I complain that in his role, he, he talks too much and he improvises a little too much. And maybe that's not exactly the fault entirely of Ryan Reynolds as much as it is the editors who just allow him to improvise, even though he's not as good at improvisation as Will Ferrell. But in this movie, I did think that A, Ryan Reynolds did well playing a snarky jerk. B, he really put in the time and dedication for this role, especially parts that involve song and dance. And there is a lot of singing and dancing in this film. And C, he and Will Reynolds work incredibly well together. As a matter of fact, there's one particular song in this film of many songs, which is called Good Afternoon, which actually Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell perform very well together. In addition to the fact that Good Afternoon is very well written. I'm not going to tell you the backstory behind Good Afternoon, but regardless, it's probably one of the funniest parts in this film. And I did I did actually laugh at some other parts in this movie as including one part where one of the people who's being redeemed is a misanthrope who lives in America whose name is Karen Blansky and she's played by Rose Byrne who appears in the very beginning of the film and the the fact that her name is Karen is probably no coincidence especially given how Karen has become a notable pejorative here but I thought that Ryan Reynolds character here was developed very well especially when you learn about his backstory as well as his relation to his immediate family both deceased and still living but the musical numbers here are over the top and also very well done and this movie is directed by Sean Anders who has directed a couple of duds it's not entirely his fault for example that that's my boy was such a terrible film but he redeemed himself years later when he wrote and directed the film Instant Family, starring Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne, in addition to Isabella Merced, that film was excellent. And Sean Anders, I don't think, has directed a musical yet, but he does a great job here. I mean, he definitely pulls out all the stops and gets probably the most talented dancers ever to come out of presumably New York, maybe L.A. too, but there are probably a lot of Juilliard graduates who are dancing in this film. They dance incredibly well. And I could probably see Spirited becoming a Christmas classic years later. There are some jokes that don't land particularly well. There are also some allusions to other Christmas movies, including one particular Christmas classic starring Will Ferrell that isn't capitalized on as much as I think it would have been. There also is one sex scene that was kind of uh, pulled out of this film that I think if they had actually shown it, it tastefully or as tastefully as you would show a sex scene, it might have actually worked in this film, but Spirited still has a lot of spirit, which is why I give it my rating of a high checkout. There are things in this film that I did not think would work at all, particularly Ryan Reynolds in this film, that actually surprised me. But there were some moments to the story as well as some plot holes that kind of brought this film down a notch, as well as the idea that ghosts could retire and go back to living in the real world. I didn't exactly know if that would work, but there were some things that surprised me about this film that I didn't think would work that much to my most pleasant surprise ultimately did. So Spirit is a film that I've so far seen twice. I think I liked it a lot better the first time I saw it than the second time where I noticed a lot more of the plot holes. But this is a film, as I said, with a ton of spirit. And I could see this film potentially being a modern Christmas classic in a couple of years. But of course, time will tell in that regard. Welcome back to Words on Film. 
Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters on the weekend of December 22nd, 2023. I could possibly um, cover Christmas, but A, I don't have a ton of time for that, and B, there are a ton of films that are coming out on December 22nd that are worth noting. For example, one of the biggest films to come out on December 22nd, subject to being released on, on that day, is Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, which is another film in the DC Extended Universe that has Jason Momoa coming back as Aquaman, the titular Aquaman. But... I'm kind of thinking to myself, after so many DCEU movies have let me down, I'm just thinking, DCEU, just throw in the towel. I, I, I mean, Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is showing some signs of exhaustion as well, but I don't know. I mean, this movie has Jason Momoa as, coming back as Aquaman. He's pretty good in the role, but Ben Affleck is coming back as Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Come on! Oh, for God's sake. But you also have some other actors coming back, including Patrick Wilson and Nicole Kidman as King Orm and Atlanta, respectively. Or excuse me, Atlanta, respectively. A-T-L-A-N-N-A, not L-A or L-T-L-A-N-T-A. And Dolph Lundgren is actually appearing in this film as King Neros. Interesting casting choice. Uh, the one actress who is not appearing in this film is Amber Heard, and we kind of know why she's not appearing in it. But regardless, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is a film that I will see, and I'll review it for you a little bit later, but obviously not for next week's show because there won't be a show next week. Another film that's going to be released in theaters on December 22nd is a film that's called Anyone But You. And this is a film that is a romantic comedy starring Sidney Sweeney and Glenn Powell. And this is a film about two people named Bay and Ben who, after an amazing first date, have a fire attraction that turns ice cold until they find themselves unexpectedly reunited at a destination wedding in Australia. So they do what any two mature adults would do, pretend to be a couple. I don't know why, if they see themselves on a flight to Australia, they have to pretend to be a couple, but the movie will explain. And I guess they look like the perfect couple because they're both attractive, especially Sydney Sweeney. She's a, a babe. Also, Alexandra Ship is in this movie as well, and Alexandra Ship is a knockout. Uh, there, she was not cast as the younger Storm in the X-Men prequels for no good reason. In other words, the younger counterpart of Halle Berry. Yeah, she's that good. But anyway, anyone but you sounds like pretty predictable fare for stand-up com uh, for romantic comedies, and I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that's subject to being released in theaters on December 22nd is a film called The Iron Claw. Spoiler alert, I reviewed this film earlier in the show. It is a knockout. I have seen it. I have reviewed it. See the film, moving on. Another film that's re being released on December 22nd, or at least subject to being released on December 22nd, is a film that's called Migration. And this is an animated film that features the voice talents of Elizabeth Banks, Isabella Merced, Keegan-Michael Key, and Aquafina, in addition to Carol Kane and Danny DeVito, amongst other people. And this is a film about a family of ducks who try to convince their overprotective father to go on the vacation of a lifetime. Now, this already sounds, I think, in terms of plot, like The Croods. And the animation is not nearly as good as it is on The Croods. This is a film that's brought to you by Illumination, not DreamWorks Studios. And Illumination is the one that brought us Despicable Me, as well as those, in my opinion, very tired Minion films. But Migration is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And another film that is subject to being released in theaters on December 22nd is a film that I really wish I was reviewing on time as a brand new film. But this is a film that looks like an Oscar contender, and it's a film that's called American Fiction. Now, already the reviews have been coming in for this, and while I don't want to build it up too much, the reviews have been stellar for this film. 
It's a film about a novelist who's fed up with the establishment profiting from black entertainment who uses a pen pen name to write a book that propels him to the heart of hypocrisy and the madness he claims to disdain. So the star of this film is Jeffrey Wright, and this film also co-stars Tracy Ellis Ross, John Ortiz, Erica Alexander, and, oh, great, uh, (laughs) an actress I haven't seen uh, for a while, Leslie Uggams, uh, who is probably best known to modern audiences for playing Blind Al in the Deadpool movies, but there is so much more to Leslie Uggams' repertoire than uh, Blind Al. Uh, she hosted the Mupp- or she was a special guest star on the Muppet Show. She's been on Broadway. She's been on stage and screen. But anyway, uh, this movie uh, looks really, really good. I can't wait to see it. And man, I wish I was hosting my show next week so I could review this for you. But I don't want to build it up too much. But then again, I might have built it up enough. But regardless, this is a film that looks very promising, and I will review it for you later. Who knows? But anyway, on Christmas Day itself, which falls on a Monday, there are a few notable films that are going to be released in the theaters, and I'm going to get through them as as quickly as I can. One of them is The Color Purple, which is a a semi-remake of the 1986 Steven Spielberg film that starred Whoopi Goldberg and actually made Whoopi Goldberg a household name. It was nominated for several Academy Awards and won zero uh, when it was released. But this Color Purple has a tough act to follow, but it's also less of, would you say, a direct remake of the Steven Spielberg film and more a remake of the Broadway musical, which has been doing very well. And Fantasia Barino, who won the third season of American Idol and has also been a big star on Broadway, is reprising her role in this film as uh, Seeley. And the other stars of this film include Taraji P. Henson, who I love, Danielle Brooks, who I'm so happy to see again after Orange is the New Black. And some of the other stars in the film include Corey Hawkins, Halle Bailey, Sierra, her... David Allen Greer, Dion Cole, John Baptiste, Louis Gossett Jr. So we have a ton of amazing talent in this film, and I'm not even halfway down the list. But I'm just giving you probably the most recognizable last names, or rather the most recognizable names. And even though this has a very tough act to follow after Steven Spielberg's masterpiece, I am going to see this film, and I'm going to let you know what I think on a future show. And the last film that I'm going to cover for you, although it's not the only film that's going to be released subjectively on December 25th, is a film that's called Ferrari. And this is a film that is directed by Michael Mann and stars Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari. And this is set in the summer of 1957 with Enzo Ferrari's auto empire in crisis. The ex-racer turned entrepreneur pushes himself and his drivers to the edge as they launch into the Mille Milia, a treacherous 1,000-mile race across Italy. Now, there are so many things I could say about the movie Ferrari. It has a... It, has a questionable act to follow after the Ridley Scott film Gucci, where Adam Driver played the heir of the Gucci fortune. And here he's playing the heir of another notable fortune that's also a very uh, ostentatious Italian name, Ferrari. But this film, fortunately, does not have Jared Leto co-starring in it. And Adam Driver was not the thing that went wrong about the movie Gucci. I actually thought he did well in that film. But that is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.